Hi everyone, David here. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Foresight Climate and Energy. If you like what you hear and want access to more of our fascinating in-depth content on the energy transition, you need to subscribe. You can try us for 30 days for just €29, which will get you full access to our website and app. We also have a wide range of subscription packages to fit you or your company's needs. Follow the link in the show notes or go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe to find out more. Hello and welcome to episode 40 of What Matters, the podcast from Foresight, Climate and Energy. My name is David Weston and joining me today are two of the brightest minds on the energy transition. They are Jan Rosner of the Regulatory Assistance Project and Michaela Hall from Agora Energy Vendor. Hi team, summer is over but we're back together again. How are you both? Ha, good. And Dave, I see you worked on the intro. <laughs> I did. <laughs> no pressure. No, it's it's beautiful now, Dave. You've done a, a, a really great job. Um, it sounds so much better. Um, now I'm 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 still kind of <laughs> partly in summer mode, um, and I'm I'm still hopeful that uh, it will return eventually, and I can go back uh, swimming um, in the River Thames in Oxford. But I, I think that's wishful thinking, isn't it? <laughs> I think so at the moment, given the lots of recent news about various dumping, um, sewage dumpage and things like that, but we won't uh, dwell on that today. Uh, this week, instead, we're delving into the fascinating Australian energy market, a country with massive renewables resource, green hydrogen ambitions and significant geopolitical clout, uh, but also one hampered by a well-funded fossil fuel lobby, difficult landscapes, quite literally, uh, and political indecision. Our guest this week to discuss these issues and more is Luke Menzel, CEO of Energy Efficiency Council in Australia. Luke, thank you so much for joining us on One Matters this week. It is an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. Perhaps to begin with, Luke, could you just give us a little uh, update for our listeners on the current status of the energy transition in Australia? How uh, how much progress have you guys made in the last few years uh, and where, where, where do things stand today? Well, a quick update. <laughs> On that. that is a that is a big big question. Hey, um, well we're we're at a moment of opportunity, I suppose. Uh, uh, people that have followed uh, Australian climate politics, and I know that it is um, of some interest around the world. It's a there's quite a, li- a lot of um, uh, uh, bifo on the Australian political front when it comes to climate politics. We are, uh, of course, uh, the nation uh, with the distinction of. Uh, introducing a, a carbon price pretty early back in 2012, but then repealing that carbon price just a couple of years later when there was a change of government. Um, uh, so the climate politics is played in a pretty bare knuckled way here. Um, and it means that with the change of government a couple of years ago, um, uh, we have a new Labor government uh, who is um, uh, making, I think, some substantive efforts to uh, turn over a new leaf in terms of uh, Australian climate and energy policy, um, they are very mindful that the consensus around that change is fragile and they need to bring the community along for the journey because they tried to do it once before and they lost the next election and many of the reforms that they put in place uh, were ultimately repealed. Um, so the at a meta level, where we are in Australia is that um, bipartisanship continues to be elusive when it comes to climate and energy policy. I am an optimist. 
I am very hopeful that we can we can build that bipartisanship over time, but it is it is something which is still off in the distance. There are some, some things that are going really well. Um, we are the country in the world with the highest um, uh, per capita penetration of solar PV. We have embraced solar um, right across the suburbs of Australia. Australia, um, contrary to popular belief, is actually a very urbanised country. We've got a, a lot of big cities, um, a lot of people um, living in detached and semi-detached housing. And um, as energy prices have gone up for various reasons over the last 15 years, the response from Australians has been uh, to wax solar panels on the roof. So about a third of Australian homes have solar PV at this point. Um, we have also had a very successful renewable energy target. Um, you know, the that uh, has seen a, a significant rollout of um, solar and, and wind generation in the grid um, over the last little while in the last 12 months are 37.4% of the electricity in uh, the national electricity market. Our largest electricity grid was provided by renewable resources uh, and that's about, that's largely solar and wind. And we've got, uh, we, we've got some ambitious targets in that space, 82% renewables by 2030 is our, is our current target. Um, we've got a new uh, 2030 target for emissions reduction across the whole economy. That's 43% um, by 2030. Um, we've got a net zero target uh, by 2050. And that 43% target by 2030 is effectively like drawing a straight line from where we are now to 2050 and, and just putting a, putting a dot in that line and that's that's, that's uh, the where they got the forty three percent of essentially. So look, um, there's some things to be excited about. My day job is actually not talking about so much the supply side of the transition. I'm the CEO of the Energy Efficiency Council. We talk a lot more about efficiency, electrification, mm. demand management. Um, they haven't featured as prominently in Australia's energy transition to date. Um, it is a part of the suite of policies that the national government is seeking to pursue. We've got a new energy performance strategy that's due out in a couple of months. And interestingly, um, the demand side is actually coming into more focus the, the further along we get in the energy transition for a whole bunch of really interesting reasons. Like we've got so much solar on the grid now, particularly in suburbs, we've actually got to start think about how we can shift mm. load into the middle of the day so we can avoid, you know, weirdness happening in the grid around minimum operational demand and stuff like that. Um, we're really starting to see that the duck curve hit in a big way in certain jurisdictions and grappling with how we deal with that period between 6 and 9 p.m. And as Jan knows, um, he was out with us for our national conference just two or three, um, two or three months ago, the... Um, uh, what's emerging um, from some of the work we've been doing recently is actually thermal performance of buildings is emerging as this incredibly valuable grid resource because as we electrify, um, which is a big agenda in Australia, um, you know we can minimise the extra load we're putting on that grid on the grid between six and nine pm in states like Victoria, which actually get pretty cool and which have a significant heating load that is currently provided by gas. So there's a lot going on. Mm. <laughs> I'm happy to dive into any of that. Absolutely. Um, there's so many different moving parts. And what I would say is that Australia is a little bit of a, um, it's a little bit of a sandbox. Um, there's elements of the energy transition where we're just a, 
a touch ahead of other parts of the world. It means we're running up against issues, particularly in our grid, a little bit sooner than some other parts of the world as well. And we're kind of grappling with how how to mm. deal with them. Um, the big take it is you kind of need you need to, we need to be mashing every single button. But on the uh, on the console, we need we need energy efficiency. We need demand management. We need demand response. We need the we need renewables. Um, we need batteries. Um, how many batteries we need is a subject of big a big conversation in Australia. And I suppose the other big piece of this whole transition is where we're going next in terms of like our export industries. And there's a there's this big agenda around you know moving away from fossil fuel exports to hydrogen, which is a subject of intense interest for uh, many politicians in Australia as well. Thanks, Luke. That was a tour de force through <laughs> Australian uh, energy and climate policy in, uh, I think, um, just about five minutes. Um, I just wanted to pick out one of these themes, and and then I'm sure we're going to unpick some of the things that you mentioned in more depth. But when I was in Australia uh, earlier this year, one of the things that really struck me is that um, you know, the, the kind of European con- preconception is that it's very hot in Australia, so um, mm-hmm. you don't really need to um, have particularly good insulation. And um, I, I learned that that is not necessarily the case. Maybe you can unpick that a little bit and just explain why energy efficiency is, is important, even in a country that is presumably warmer than than, than in Europe. Uh, yeah. And the other thing that struck me is that uh, the buildings that I've seen, and uh, you've shown me some of them, uh, are extremely poorly insulated um, and uh, basically have no insulation, many of them. And it's just mm-hmm. um, you know, some wood cladding and, and plasterboard, and that's, that's, that's all there is. So it would be great to maybe unpick that a little bit, you know, the building stock uh, in Australia and um, the, the importance of energy efficiency, uh, even in a country that is um, you know, a lot warmer climate than, than Europe does. Sure. So uh, Australia has a bunch of different climate zones. Um, we've got temperate climate zones in the north of the country, but where I am in, in Melbourne, um, in, in the south, the country gets quite cool. You know, it's it's not uh, unheard of to get to, um, you know, minus two or minus one or minus zero, which I know um, the uh, the Europeans on the call and, and listening in um, will not regard as, as, as particularly taxing, but... Um, there's there's obviously two elements to you know how you're feeling within your building like how, like it could be can be quite cold outside if your building's built properly you're, you're warm inside and the classic uh, experience that I have with my European friends that move to Australia move into an existing home uh, is that they 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 say that they're the coldest that they have ever been inside. <laughs> Because, despite the fact it's not actually super cold outside, but be just because the the building is performing quite poorly. I know Mikhail is joining us from Germany. Um, the uh, you know Germany was one of the first places in the world to in- introduce energy performance standards for buildings. Um, what back in the early eighties, I suppose. Um, uh, Australia didn't get to that until two thousand and five. So all the building stock built before 2005, which is obviously the bulk of the building stuff. No energy performance standards whatsoever. And so insulation was an afterthought, if anything. Um, and uh, our rating system for energy performance of, of new buildings goes to 10. If you rate the existing building stock using that standard, the average is about 1.8 out of 10. So it's really, really bad. Um, so when we talk about energy efficiency, like before you even get to energy transition stuff or, you know, energy bills, it's just like 
a health issue that we have. Um, I, I, I so when I talk to uh, uh, folk here in Australia, trying to explain why this is so so important, like people aren't necessarily um, dying from you know minus 20 degree temperatures here in Australia, but they are dying from, you know, one or two degrees. They're just dying very slowly. And we do have cases of people presenting in hospitals with hypothermia that they have contracted in their homes in Australia because they've just performed so poorly. So that's that's a real issue. Um, and then to go to the other part of your question, uh, we're, we're barreling through this energy transition um, as I said, uh, the thermal performance of homes is becoming a uh, an important grid resource, and so you know we've got options about how we deliver uh, deliver energy, match supply with demand in that period between six and nine pm. We could do it all with batteries, for example. Um, that would be quite an expensive solution, particularly at the moment. Um, we could also do it by you know actually better insulating our homes, draft proofing and do it, doing that thermal performance. But because energy efficiency hasn't been a big issue, there isn't a sort of, particularly in the residential space, there isn't a significant um, industry built around it. We're kind of starting a little bit from scratch. Um, on uh, one of my uh, podcasts, um, uh, one of my co-hosts, Alison Reeve, on an episode which is forthcoming, um, made a uh, the point on a recent episode that um, the uh, Australian energy ministers first agreed to roll out um, mandatory disclosure of energy performance at point of sale of lease 19 years ago. And uh, at, to date, we've got one jurisdiction in the ACT that has actually followed through on that. Um, so this has been a long-held <laughs> agenda, a long-held aspiration, but we're still not there yet. Now there are there is work afoot for the national government to take that step, um, but it's still a it's still uh, a work in in progress. We hope that we should within the next two or three years we'll get to the point where we actually have that that uh, information out in the market, which will allow us to kind of cre- uh, create some value around things like thermal performance of buildings, which will have all of these th- flow on effects. Will they also be able to benefit? You, you're talking about there um, uh, when weather gets cold, and obviously it's quite rare in uh, in Australia or, or, or more common than people realise though. Does it also, effective insulation will also help protect citizens against the extreme heat, which we're seeing a, yes. a lot more, particularly in Australia. And there was the, a couple of years ago, the huge wildfires recently yeah. sparked by the um, extreme heat. Is that another a growing concern as well in the it's summer? A, it's a, yeah, it's actually a, a great point. There's a sort of a an emerging coalition. There's the energy efficiency people. Um, and then there's the health community that are concerned around, you know, uh, some of these issues. And there's all the insurance community and the banking community that are concerned about the resilience issues associated with our housing stock. Now, there's, I am optimistic that we're actually going to, going to, um, be able to drive the kind of transformation in Australia's housing stock that we need just because there's so many reasons to do it. And there's so many kind of diverse stakeholders coming together around this agenda right now. It is a big job. It is a huge job, but there are so many reasons to do it, um, including just being able to keep people safe as we do as we experience more and more of these extreme weather events, which is a huge a huge issue, particularly in Australia. We are one of the places in the world that is going to be most subject to some of those impacts of climate change. I have a question. 
maybe you are a really, a really, really optimistic person. But from your intro, I have to say what I missed and what I'd be curious to hear more about is a bit, for me, Australia, I perceived it also as a quite fossil fuel country with a, you know, quite heavy entrenched fossil lobby, still Australia having this nice overall image. So um, I'd be curious how this is going. Coal exit, <laughs> you know, I read somewhere one one region decided uh, similar law as Germany on um, no longer allowing gas boilers in new built. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure there are heavy discussions, no? Also yeah. going on. And uh, yeah, if there's anything that I think you're following also, I saw on your your uh, LinkedIn or Twitter, you're following also the discussion in Europe. If there's anything particular we can learn from Australia in that respect. Okay. So there's a few different elements to that. Uh, so if we if we think about it from the from the residential point of view, for example, I, I listened to your last episode, and there was a bit of discussion in that in that episode about how the how the energy transition is kind of moving away from the it, it being something which is located in the grid and kind of amorphous and esoteric and not really impacting people's lives. To, it's it's actually literally coming home, like it is starting to affect you know the technology that they feel that is available for them to use in their homes, and you know there's some behaviour changes and some some new things to learn about you know. A heat pump is actually a perfectly viable technology to do the job of a gas boiler, right? And where we've we've just hit that conversation in Australia that has been running in Europe for a, a little while now. So um, the the Australian Capital Territory, which is a little bit like Washington DC, it's like a, a territory created specifically to house our capital, has had made the decision a little while ago um, to phase out gas connections in new homes. Um, one of our most po- popular states, Victoria, has just made the decision to do the same thing. And this is a very significant decision because Victoria is where most of the residential gas use is. So that only happened about a month ago. Um, and it came as something of a shock to most of the Victorian community because there has been a concerted effort, indeed government was saying this for a long time, is that it is better to use gas to do things in your home like heating than to use the really dirty coal-fired electricity that was running through through the through the network. So that was like, and that was true for a very long time. That was true. Um, the emissions intensity of gas was was uh, was lower then. Um, we've got really terrible brown coal in Victoria. It's one of the most in, in, uh, emissions intensive uh, electricity systems in the world historically. Um, but it's flipped now, right? Because we are seeing the renewables ramp up and we, uh, we are in a position where we need to start electrifying, um, so that we can catch that big wave of renewables. You know, we're targeting 82% in 2030. Now, whether we get there or not is a subject of great debate because there's, it's a huge task to build the generation and the, and the transmission lines and all there's huge resource bottlenecks on that side of the market. But we still, it's going to be a lot higher than it is now. That of that we can be confident, um, and so um, the Victorian government's decision to just stop connecting new gas—you can still put in a new a gas boiler into an existing home if it's already connected to the gas network—is actually a pretty modest decision. It's a modest step forward, but it's an incredibly important one because it starts the conversation with 
the community. And it's a conversation that hasn't really been had yet. We've, and this is the great lesson that we've had here in Australia, which I, I suppose, um, you know, is reflected in some of the experiences in Germany recently and those intense political debates that just erupted around, uh, the phase out of gas appliances is that you know, you've got to be careful as a government that you're bringing the community along the journey with you. Otherwise, there's the potential for a backlash. And we had we had the most dramatic backlash one can imagine in climate and energy policy, which is an economy-wide carbon price repealed by a subsequent government. And so we're very alive to that, I think, in Australia. And there's this great tension, right, for those of us that care about climate, because we realise that we have no time. <laughs> Like we really need to act now. By the same token, if we act in a way that doesn't bring the community along for the journey, it's all for naught because it just we go backwards. And so this is kind of like this 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 space that we just have to sit in and and do our best with, I suppose. Luke, I just wanted to um, follow up quickly on the point you made about the German debate about the heating law, um, which I think you referred to, and and then maybe ask you a question um, about gas um, uh, separately. Uh, so just an add-on, I think the, the debate didn't just emerge. I think it's it's pretty clear that some of these debates are actively promoted by special interest groups and yep. uh, in, in they pollute the discussion. Uh, I think it's, 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 it, there's evidence certainly for the UK uh, where the similar debate is taking place that a lot of the stories, the negative press coverage that we've seen was actually funded by um, you know, by lobby organizations working with PR agencies to uh, see doubt on some of the proposals. And I think you probably will encounter similar things in, in Australia and anywhere, really. Um, but I wanted to ask you a question about gas, because I think this is closely linked. And we had several episodes uh, on this on this show on this podcast about um, the gas transition, about the energy price crises. Uh, you know very well that Europe has been affected um, very, very significantly by the high gas prices. Could you talk us through, um, you know, what's the importance of gas in Australia, um, both um, for consumption, production, uh, export, um, and to what extent has Australia suffered the same fate as as Europe uh, from those really high gas prices that we have seen um, in um, the last year? So historically, Australia had very cheap gas, sort of sitting around four dollars a gigajoule, uh, and be- because we were effectively we we didn't used to export gas, and so we weren't uh, exposed to global markets. Many years ago, actually, this was uh, a decision made under the previous Labor government. There was a decision to build very massive export terminals in the north of, of the country and start start exporting gas. And one of the things that folk were aware of at the time was, well, we're going to we're going to start seeing that impact on local prices. And there were there were you know uh, manufacturers and food processors, probably more for energy users, larger energy users, more focused on it than residential customers. Who this was very esoteric and off in the future, but they were sort of like, well, you know, this is going to impact us as well. And they all know it's it'll it, she'll be right, mate. Is <laughs> Is a uh, classic Australian f- phrase, um, and I think was applied to this question back in the day. Um, we saw a very significant price spike in 2017 when those exports really started to ramp up, and this this coincided with a whole bunch of stuff that was happening in the energy system at the time. A very large power um, power station in Victoria, where I am now, 
closed called Hazelwood, which took a lot of capacity out of the grid at the same, around the same time that we were started exporting gas. And so there was all this stuff roiling around the energy system. We also had like a, what was described as a once in a century storm in, in South Australia, which took down a whole bunch of power lines and sort of ramped up the, like the, the, the but debate on energy back in 2017 was white hot because of gas, because of hazelwood, because of this this perceived unreliability of the energy system. So you had price spikes then. At that point in the crisis, you know, energy, gas, gas bills were getting up to around $10, $12 a gigajoule. So three times the historical average. Um, that was really eye-watering for manufacturers. At the time, you had all of this stuff going on. Electricity prices were going up as well because of the way that gas generation feeds into the electricity price. Um, but when the war in Ukraine hit, we were getting, you know, gas gas prices for manufacturers and food prices more, you know, 40 or $50 a gigajoule. So it made 2017 feel like a warm bath, right? Now that's largely settled down. There's been some interventions, particularly for large energy users, to kind of cap the price of of delivered gas. People so the heat has come out of that of that space. It is now it's now sitting around that 10, 12 gigajoule mark. Um, some of this has been experienced by consumers as well. Um, there's a there's a strong perception that that you know an awareness that that gas is more expensive. But whether you know it's also flowed through to electricity prices. So the signals of, you know, gas is more expensive than electricity. Like there's a strong sense in the community, and this is, you know, based on some evidence, just or energy is just more expensive when we don't like it. Um, so what that – and this is, the, this is a reflex that – uh, Australian consumers, are, a muscle that Australian consumers have built up quite well at this point is, well, you know what? It works. Solar. We're just going to whack more solar on our roofs and have less exposure uh, to the energy system, less exposure to this vol- volatility, and it's, it's and then that, that that's an opportunity to take some control back over our our energy situation. Hi everyone, me again. Please do rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. It really helps us out. Means we can make more shows like this, and means more people can find us. Also, a quick reminder to subscribe to Foresight Climate and Energy so you don't miss out on any of our other podcasts or long-form journalism. Head to the link in the show notes or go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe. Really want to get onto the demand side and the, and the grids and energy efficiency, uh, especially within your expertise. Just one question there on fossil fuels. Do the, does the government, uh, national government or uh, state governments, have they brought together any um, phase-out plans for the fossil fuel industry uh, and any um, work in making sure workers have a, have jobs afterwards uh, and then yep. sort of all the questions around the just transition and those sort of things? So um, the flip side of that 82% renewables target is that there's it, it implies a lot of coal retirement, um, when we've had uh, international experts out to Australia at different times over the last decade, they've looked at the schedule for coal retirements, much of it in the 2020s and the early 2030s. There's this huge amount of capacity that's just going out of the system. And they just go, "This, your timing is excellent <laughs> because you're phasing out coal exactly when you need to. Now, we haven't been as proactive as we should have been in terms of building new renewable capacity, which 
there's debates going on now around the extension of coal-fired power stations and the concerns of, you know, can we build the renewables quick enough? There's broadly a consensus um, of most of the community, certainly state governments and the federal government, um, that we, you know, coal is on its way out. Um, there's probably going to be some gas still in the system for peaking um, and firming support for renewables. But, you know, that 82% target is, is broadly one that, you know, energy experts, um, state and federal governments are all on board for and working towards. Um, so that has flow-on effects for the communities that support those coal-fired power stations. And there, uh, this year, the government established uh, a net zero authority um, which is effectively um, it, it, another name for it could have been a just transition authority, which was effectively focused on working with those communities around the retirement of those those coal assets. Um, that's where most of the focus is right now. There isn't a conversation at the national level within the major political parties around phasing out fossil fuel exports or indeed, you know, a, an active agenda to, you know, uh, try and avoid new fossil fuel resources being opened up. The broad approach that the government is taking is, well, if people are buying it, we'll sell it. Um, and that, you know, but acknowledging, and it's interesting, actually, we have just seen a new intergenerational report um, released, which is kind of us uh, the, us as a nation looking ahead 40 years into the future and kind of thinking about um, uh, what are the megatrends that might impact the success of the Good Ship Australia? Um, in that report, um, there's a range of scenarios looking at how um, different levels of global ambition might impact um, Australia's ability to export resources. And it's pretty straightforward. It's just like if we're like the, the more ambitious the world gets, the lower we expect our fossil fuel exports to go. But to date, um, the position of both the major parties in Australia is it's not our job to stop selling this stuff to the world. It's, the, it's, it's and it, they don't quite go to that next step and say, well, if they stop wanting to buy it, then, you know, well, that's, that's something that we need to prepare for. And, you know, they're, they're doing that thinking. And, and that's where the hydrogen piece comes in because the narrative around a lot of, um, I guess that, that resources space in Australia is that, you know, we can we can transition away from those carbon intensive exports and move to exports like green hydrogen. If I may, you're perfectly prepared for what I had in my mind asking you. Um, what I wanted to ask you is how serious are those plans to become truly a green hydrogen exporter? Um, I read, you know, I read shipping the sunshine to Germany, etc. But in the end, what was shipped a while ago was, you know, um, this first ship that came with liquid hydrogen to Japan. That was anything but low carbon <laughs> on that ship, right? <laughs> mm. Anything. Um, so, yeah, just to understand that a bit better, because I think even if Australia is far, far away, Yep. There's still this idea that it might supply Europe with hydrogen, derivative, embedded hydrogen. Would be good to have your your opinion on that. So <laughs> I uh, 
one of my podcasts, I'm a co-host on a podcast called Let Me Sum Up, and we we sum up climate and energy papers. So the idea is that there's so many of them and and um, uh, nobody can read them all. So our public service is that we read them and then uh, we then you can listen to the podcast and we talk about it and make some bad jokes along the way. And <laughs> hopefully, hopefully everybody um, enjoys the ride and learns something. Um We've read so many papers on hydrogen. <laughs> we've done we've done 31, 32 episodes now. And this is kind of like, and not just from Australia, from from around the world, because it, this is not just an, a, an Australian obsession. This is a global obsession. Tell right? us about it. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I've read some of the European papers, right? And, you know, Jan and I have had so many discussions about how hydrogen is kind of infecting the uh, the debate around the transition for low temperature heat, whether it's in homes or in in manufacturers or, or food processes, and the, the the trick with hydrogen, just to, I'll, I will answer your question, but this is kind of the view I've developed as I've kind of waded my way through all this, is that it is impossible to talk about it as a meta topic, right? It's sectoral. You've got to look at it. You've got to look at the the role that hydrogen will play in each sector of the economy. It is. Absolutely implausible that it's going to play a significant role in low temperature heat. It just doesn't make sense. It just it, we the, we have the technology available to, you know, provide those services much more efficiently right now. The idea that we're going to create create this vast, you know, Rube Goldberg machine system that will somehow get use hydrogen as an energy carrier to do something much much more efficient, much less efficiently and more expensively, it just doesn't make any sense. Like it's not going to happen. Um, you know, as you go up into sort of higher value applications and higher temperature heat, it becomes more plausible. But I would say that there there are competing electrification technologies, even for those higher temperature applications. And you know, hydrogen has been going toe to toe with electricity as an energy carrier for over a century. And again and again, electricity has cleaned hydrogen's clock. So I am uh, I'm very open to the idea that hydrogen will play a role in in niches, um, but it's got to be green hydrogen, and we've got to think about the the you know um, the both technical challenges and the potential costs of transporting the stuff. Now, going to your question around, are we serious? Um, I think we are because it goes to the, you know, it, it goes through to, you know, what is the positive story we can tell resource focused communities about what their role is in the energy transition? What are their jobs going to look like? And we've got a lot of expertise here in Australia around shipping stuff, energy around the world. So if there's a plausible pathway and there's demand globally, for, for it and we and we can actually transport probably not to Germany probably more likely to South Korea or Japan but that does mean and it is in Germany's interest that they're not competing for the same hydrogen from another part of the world like we do need that kind of global ecosystem to exist but one of the but you know there's a, there's kind of like a little bit of magical thinking around hydrogen which i think is hopefully going to get more grounded over the next few years about what are we actually practically talking about the big and the big question that we have here in australia is how do we get that initial 
ramp up of demand started? Because you can have a lot of pilot projects all over the place and there's lots of them. What are we going to be using the, the hydrogen for in the short term? Um, and it's likely to be in these industrial precincts, right? And you're going to be co-locating renewables. And that's the other part of the hydrogen story. It's probably a lot easier and, and more cost-effective to do the value, some of the value-adding here and ship the goods rather than ship the hydrogen. Um, you know, I'm talking at a very high level. There's lots of intricacies in here, but it's just, you know, like everything, <laughs> you know, if I come here and say energy efficiency is going to solve all your problems, take it with a grain of salt, right? Um, say, well, you know, we can you decarbonize the world with renewables. Uh, no, you can't. Um, you need some other stuff. Um, like you, like I said earlier, you've got to be mashing every button on the control panel. And if you get overinvested that any technology is going to solve all your problems, you're probably going to come a cropper, as we'd say here in Australia. Um, I, look, I think your point about there being a little bit of magical thinking on hydrogen, um, I, I would, I would uh, contest. I think there's been an awful lot of <laughs> magical thinking on, on hydrogen. Uh, a, a little bit, um, uh, I think, is an understatement. Um, I wanted to bring you back on um, your energy demand, energy efficiency a little bit, if I may, because that is your day job, isn't it? I mean, you, you run the mm. Energy Efficiency Council. You've done that for quite a number of years now. And um, you've just released a report, I think, when I was uh, in Australia, I saw a preview, I got a little preview of that report, which is about the changing role of demand management and energy efficiency you know, in that context of you know, one third of homes having solar, uh, what's happening on the gas side, you know, hydrogen, all of these mega trends that you're sort of seeing in Australia. Um, how does efficiency and demand management still fit in? Uh, and, and you mentioned your other podcast, um, let me sum up, um, uh, and maybe you can sum up your own report for us, Luke, and say <laughs> what's 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 in it, because um, I think that'll be really interesting um, for us to hear. Because in Europe, of course, in in some countries, we're now reaching uh, you know, territory where these questions come up. Right? What do we do when there's a lot of solar, a lot of wind on the system? How do we optimize the system? What's the role of the demand yeah. side? Uh, and maybe if you could sum up what you've done in Australia, I think that would be tremendously helpful. I, I'm I'm very happy to because I'm on your podcast. Um, on Let Me Sum Up, we have a uh, no self dealing uh, rule. Um, so um, the hosts, because we all work at advocacy organisations, are not allowed. We're just not allowed to sum up any of our own reports. <laughs> but because I'm on your part, podcast, I, I can do it. Um, so I need to give full credit to the report's author, um, Rob Murray-Leach, uh, who is the EEC's Head of Market Transformation, and um, apologise to Rob in advance for not doing as good a job of this as no doubt he would if, uh, if, if he was here. Um, but this is a significant piece of work, which was kind of it, what we tried to do was answer a basic question. The question is, if you've got an um, energy system that is approaching 100% renewables, um, we're basically swimming in, in cheap, uh, clean electrons. Why do we care about energy efficiency anymore? And it is a question we get asked all the time. And because, you know, we do have a you know an emerging political consensus that, you know, is heading towards that, you know, 80, 90% renewables. Um, and so this is this is something that's that's very front of mind. And we <laughs> it's interesting. Um, Rob and I went into this, I think 
very intellectually curious to find out what we would find. And if, and if we had found, well, actually, we don't have to care about energy efficiency anymore. It's like, well, we've devoted over a decade of our lives to this thing, but maybe, you know, this is, this is a, uh, uh, a task or a, or a mission of, of the last century. It's not one of the next century. We'd go do something more useful. But um, spoiler alert, that is not what we found. I, I, I mean, some degree I've mentioned some of the things that we found along the way um, uh, over the course of my com- uh, conversation already because um, this is just becoming very integrated into our, our thinking. The big shift that we've seen in Australia as our grid has been decarbonising is that energy efficiency as a generic unit um, doesn't have a lot of meaning anymore because the value of efficiency between 6 and 9pm um, uh, uh, as you know, those solar resources are coming off the grid uh, is incredibly valuable incredibly valuable the value of energy efficiency between you know 12 and 2 pm um, when the grid is flooded <laughs> with solar resources it's not very high right so time is becoming incredibly important in terms of how we think about the value of efficiency and there's different types of efficiency that we, we can think about like you've got thermal performance and and, and appliance standards which are incredibly reliable, like it just turns up. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to flick a switch. You don't have to dispatch something. If you fix the thermal performance of a building, it is just there. And it means that, you know, the load that's put on um, the grid from electric appliances will be lower than it otherwise will be. And that ladders up very quickly. You've also got other types of um, energy management. Uh, Traditionally in Australia, in places like Victoria, where I am now, um, some bright spark in the the government uh, energy agency in the 70s and 80s realised they had all this um, underutilised coal capacity in the middle of the night, so they started setting everyone's hot water systems to turn on in the middle of the night. Many of them are still doing that, <laughs> but we're in a, in a situation where it's actually going to be make a lot more sense for the heat pump hot water systems to turn on in the middle of the day to t- soak up that solar. Again, we don't have to dispatch that, we just need to set a timer, and if we do that, then that that sort of build some resilience into the system and starts to align supply and demand. And then you've got fancier stuff like um, preheating and pre-cooling of a space heating, which is bringing together a couple of those ideas. Um, you've got demand response, and there's a lot of activity around VPPs, virtual power plants in Australia, which is kind of aggregating either batteries or aggregating load and, and bidding that into the market like it's a generator. All of those things are happening but what we found, um, if we ladder all that up to what it means at a system level, is that all if we if we take advantage of all of those techniques, it can provide a huge amount of value to the system because we're effectively rebuilding our entire energy system in the space of about twenty years. That's expensive, and if we're building the capacity that we don't need to, that's dumb. <laughs> Because we've got these lower cost resources on the demand side of the market, um, that that can mean that you know what's our great task in the energy system? Dumbing it right down, we balance supply and demand. We can do that by building building supply, or we can do that by lowering demand. And ultimately, they've just got to match, and they've got to match in real time. And so, to the degree that we can take advantage of those demand side resources, we 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 uh, have the ability to save billions whether it's tens or hundreds of billions of dollars a year, we don't quite know, but it's a lot, right? Um, and the, uh, the task before it is to kind of grasp that opportunity um, and uh, make sure that we're kind of spending as much time 
thinking about the challenges uh, of harnessing those resources on the demand side of the market as we are on the supply side of the market. Like everywhere else, renewables gets most of the attention in Australia. Um, and there's a reason for that. You can see them. Um, they're big infrastructure projects often. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they're visible and it's easy for ministers to make a decision to build something. Even if it's expensive, they can make the decision. Um, on the demand side of the markets, it's more amorphous, it's distributed, um, it's kind of complicated, it's getting up in people's business because <laughs> you're asking them to change things about their homes. It's, it's, it's harder, but there's so much value there. Um, that it's imperative that we take advantage of it. Absolutely. Is there, um, what are the sort of the new developments within um, the demand side, specifically around sort of digitalization and digital products and uh, the rise of maybe electric vehicles and uh, fleet electrification? Are those elements playing a role in the demand side uh, and playing a role in demand side flexibility? So, uh, EVs are one area where Australia is is really lagging. Um, we don't have any uh, emissions standards in Australia. That's something the new government is looking at and looking to change. But that means that we've we've really lagged the world in terms of the availability of EVs as a product um, in Australia. Um, those numbers are going up and going up very quickly. Um, Australia's, once they get their head around a technology, are quite quick at adopting it. And so I, I anticipate that uh, the uh, the uptake of EVs will actually go quite quickly now, particularly with, um, uh, with the government introducing those fleet standards. Something which we're incredibly conscious of, as, as you know, I know is exercising the mind of jurisdictions around the world, is how important it is, again, that there's good consultation between EV charging and the availability of those renewable resources. Um, we have a thing called the Integrated System Plan, which Jan would have heard a little bit about when he was in Australia, which is kind of like the projection out um, uh, around well, you know, the way the, the grid is going to develop and how it's all going to work, how that 82% renewable energy system is going to work. And in the modelling that underpins that, there's a lot of assumptions around you know, consultation of uh, of those resources like EVs, like um, the new electric loads that are that are uh, anticipated to be installed in people's homes, um, which is great. Um, one of the concerns that we're all alive to, you know, the market operator, you know, stakeholders, governments, is that we don't necessarily have the standards or the policy to do it yet. Like it's in the model. <laughs> But um, we've got a we've got a journey to go on to make sure that you know we've got those smart charges and you know there's the there's the incentives and the and the kind of, I guess the um, the behavioural piece of people actually kind of aligning their usage um, in a way that makes sense for the broader broader grid. Um, so we've got a we've got a significant journey to go on um, with that. In terms of digitalisation, though, one of the things that is really exciting about Australia is that we've got one of the most sophisticated commercial building. Uh, markets in the world, um, and specifically around energy efficiency and energy management. Um, it's one of those, those, um, uh, uh, things that are, is, uh, is not well understood about Australia among, among energy words. We've got this thing called the National Australian Built Environment Rating Scheme, which is a disclosure program. So we're, we're rubbish at residential disclosure. We've got like one little territory that does it. Commercial buildings, we're great. We're really great. We're leading the world. 
Um, and every uh, commercial building above a thousand square meters needs to disclose its energy performance on the front of the building. And this is not some kind of esoteric rating based on some design features. This is the actual energy performance in the, in the last period. And that's disclosed as a star rating. Um, and neighbors, uh, energy, um, uh, and under those buildings that have been required to disclose their neighbors energy rating has dropped the energy intensity of those buildings by 43% in the last decade. Because there's been a, yeah, there's been, and there's been a real, wow. Um, there's been real value placed on that in the market and competition among those commercial building entities. And some of that's been achieved through, um, through obviously, uh, uh, equipment upgrades and, and performance upgrades of the building. A lot of that has been achieved by optimization. And we've got this in, uh, many of the analytics firms in the commercial building space that are active in Europe, uh, and the UK, uh, and in the US actually started in Australia because there was this kind of demand for knowing what the hell's going on my building because my neighbor's rating is rubbish and I need to get it up. Um, and so it's really interesting actually. There is, um, so neighbors is, you know, slowly this story is getting out. Um, I'm doing what I can to, uh, to promote it. Um, we have a na- neighbors has been set up as a franchise in the UK. Now it's largely been building, being used in in new buildings so far, um, and there's actually I understand a pilot starting in in Germany for 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 neighbours, which um, uh, which Denef, uh, the our sister organisation in in Germany is is uh, is looking to run, and so this is very exciting. Um, I, I the neighbours is one of the areas where Australia is genuinely leading, and if we could contribute one thing to the world. <laughs> Like this would be a, a good thing to contribute because we've got a very um, tried and tested system for driving build, building energy performance building uh, improvements in that in the commercial stock. And one of the things the Australian government is reviewing right now is well, we've got um, it applies to office buildings at the moment. What are the opportunities to roll it out to other building types, shopping centres, hotels? The other important thing to know know about neighbours is this is not just like a, a generalised rating. This is um, this looks at different building types and the different usage patterns of different building types, um, as well as looking at um, the the climate zones that those buildings sit in. So you're really comparing buildings like for like. It's a very sophisticated system. So there you go. Um, there's my little spruiking for neighbours. Um, I, I sort of I, I inserted that in there. David, uh, you asked me about digitalization, and I thought, yeah. how am I going to get neighbors into this conversation? Very good. No, <laughs> excellent. Excellent. Really interesting. And we'll definitely be looking at how it performs in, in the UK and Germany as well. Yeah. well. One more quick question about uh, maybe storage and the grid in general. Uh, the rise of solar panels on everyone's rooftops, you mentioned earlier, obviously creating lots of congestion on the grid uh, and attempts to shift demand as well. You mentioned uh, we could you know, the rollout of batteries. I know Australia is quite a, an interesting market and was at the forefront of the rollout of uh, batteries, especially lithium-ion batteries, um, a couple of years ago, attaching a really big one to a wind power project. What other forms of storage um, perhaps are Australians and is Australia looking at generally? Um, and maybe other forms of generation uh, that could provide firm power to to back up the variable renewables generation. So um, grid scale batteries are having a bit of a moment in Australia. So um, we made some headlines around the world. Um, I guess this was 2018. Um, mm-hmm. There was like the tweets Tesla going thing? backwards. Of, 
Yeah, right. Elon Musk yeah. was kind of tweeting yeah, with yeah. Uh, an Australian billionaire and they were kind of daring each other about who could, whether they could build a battery in time and the South Australian Premier got in on the act. This was just after that. I mentioned the energy crisis we mm. had in 2017, so it was, it was very politically salient and all very exciting. Um, I had the very strange experience of, of going to Outback South Australia for the opening of this big battery with Elon Musk. Amazing. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah, it was a it was a whole thing. I was uh, like, I had, we had to fly into Adelaide, and then we we got on this diesel powered bus <laughs> to go <laughs> on this, I think, three or four hour uh, trip out to the big battery. It's not really in the middle of nowhere, but it's 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 far enough out um, to be, you know, it's quite picturesque out there. Um, and then, yeah, heard um, Elon Musk give a very underwhelming speech, and and then I went home. <laughs> But it was like a it was like a nerd road trip. It was very uh, it was it was a lot of fun. It was very memorable. Um, There's lots of fun people on that bus. Um, so that was a that was an initial foray. And um, one of the things that you know I talked about some of the things that are harder for governments to get their head around in terms of thermal performance improvements and electrification of uh, gas appliances. One thing that's pretty simple is like building a big battery, and there's a lot of that going on. In fact, there's the federal government has created a, a, what's called a capacity investment scheme, which is effectively underwriting the rollout of a whole bunch of grid-scale batteries, which is, you know, it's 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 a part of the mix, right? Um, it's they, they, These are resources that are good. Um, we also have some very significant invest, investments in pumped hydro. Um, so we have um, what's known as Snowy 2.0. Um, the Snowy River Scheme was this very significant nation-building project post-World War II to build this big hydro resource in Australia. That's now being repurposed um, as, a, uh, as, a, as a massive um, pumped hydro project, um, which um, has been plagued as these things are by by delays and cost blowouts, but but when it arrives, it'll be providing a significant amount of capacity into the market. Um, of course, no thermal storage anywhere hasn't really taken off. Hasn't really no. taken off. Um, the in terms of thermal storage. Um, we're, that's something we're very interested in at the Energy Efficiency Council prospectively. I mean, we, we have a huge opportunity in solar preheating and, and pre-cooling of, of buildings, um, and that goes to the question David was asking earlier around digitalisation, um, pairing, you know, electric appliances, digitalisation, and, you know, good thermal performance in buildings means you can do some really interesting stuff with a grid that is um, flooded with solar in the middle of the day in terms of actually just just you know doing that preheating pre-cooling earlier in the day and then kind of relying on the thermal mass of buildings um, to get you through and then you just need a little bit of top up at the end of the day it's theoretically possible um, it is not something that's happening regularly there are some wonks and prosumers that are already doing that um, as I'm sure there are uh, in Europe, um, but it's not, it's not, it certainly hasn't achieved mass adoption. One thing I will say though, um, on that is that one of the good things about the solar penetration is that it's kind of can be a little bit of a gate, gateway drug for consumers becoming very interested in their energy use and doing more fun stuff with their, with their building. And so there is a pathway there. And a lot of the conversation that we have in that home space is actually around, you know, uh, using the, 
the uh, Australian love affair with solar as a way of segueing into conversation around electrification, segueing into a conversation around um, energy management and making the best use of those solar resources on your roof, and also segueing in a, into a conversation around uh, energy efficiency and the thermal performance of the building. Um, so we have it in there, but um, it's it's a journey. Uh, and what about maybe some other uh, forms of generation, uh, namely things like nuclear, any role of nuclear and um, bioenergy? It's interesting that you say that. Um, not a lot of bioenergy. Uh, nuclear is a um, is a subject of some debate at the moment. We currently have a ban um, on nuclear power in Australia. So we are a significant uranium exporter around the world, um, but we don't have any nuclear energy. There was a bit of a... a um, a backlash against it um, in the 70s, even the and 80s, even the idea of putting in nuclear power plants. And we didn't really need it um, because put it, you know, at that point there wasn't a concern about climate and we had all these cheap resources. And, you know, when, you, when you're sort of choosing between as a state energy agency, which is the, the, our states built up all of that energy infrastructure back in the day, choosing between like a thermal power plant and a nuclear generator – um, and you have just, you know, literally hundreds of years of, of brown coal sitting in the ground, like it's a pretty easy choice in terms of the pathway you're going to go down. So it was an easy ban to put in place back in the day, putting aside any concerns around carbon, which which weren't a focus back at the time. Um, but that debate is being opened up again by our federal opposition. The conservative side of politics is saying, well, this nuclear ban's a bit dumb, isn't it? <laughs> like, why don't? If people want to build nuclear, we should we should let them. They're not actually, as far as I can tell, um, going as far as saying we should build nuclear. They're just saying, well, we should let build people build nuclear if they want to, and they're and, and they're using it to, um, I guess, try and open up a an alternative pathway that isn't a renewables pathway, but is still low carbon. This is incredibly controversial in Australia. For the most part, it doesn't stack up simply on cost grounds because even when you add in the firming costs, renewables are just so much cheaper, and they're they're and they're much they're, they're just in terms of the time that we've got to transition the energy system. Nuclear is not meaningful. Um, there's a conversation around small modular reactors, but as we know, um, that's an incredibly nascent technology, and so kind of building an energy policy around maybe SMRs that are turning up in the thir- in the 2030s. Is, is it is itself problematic and we don't have any of the issues around space constraints or availability of renewable resources um, that other countries around the world are grappling with it which means that they might have to have a different type of energy mix that includes other other types of technologies like SMRs um, so we're we're incredibly blessed in Australia in a way like we we've got all this space we've got these incredible renewable resources, most of the technology, most of the building blocks, if I can put it that way, that we need, we have now. Um, what we have lacked is like just a, a clear political consensus for putting them together. It's kind of like if you, <laughs> if you, uh, you know, you, you, you're sort of a, you, you, kids um, building this Lego tower and they're getting cert- a certain, certain way through and then every, every uh, you know, couple of hours, um, their big brother or sister comes through and just smashes the tower, and you have to start all over again. That's kind of the that's kind of the political consensus in Australia and the way that it's been. I'm very hopeful 
that that will change. I, I think that, you know, it is, it's not, uh, certainly the, um, the federal opposition has said they're going to take a stronger climate policy to the next election. They've yeah. only been out of power for a bit over a year. Um, so it's not surprising that they don't have a, a completely fully thought through agenda for what they would do if they won government again. Um, so, and, you know, in some ways, like they're right. Like it's not necessarily, I would say it's, there's no kind of, you know, fundamental reason, philosophical reason why there should be a ban on nuclear power. Um, it's just that it, it's a little bit of a distraction because it's sure. not a plausible pathway for Australia to take. Yeah. That kind of leads me on to my final question about, you've mentioned a few times how um, a changing government has ripped up uh, a load of policies and, and regulations that were in place that were doing quite a lot of good work in the energy transition and vice versa. And obviously at the last election, there was a big conversation around teal candidates, which were uh, traditionally uh, conservative um, candidates um, that were concerned with the party's lack of um, environmental policy, and um, that kind of led to Albanese winning the election, or at least contributed to it a little bit. Do you see that shift within the electoral, um, within the political spectrum of people taking environment and energy much more seriously? Um, has Albanese reacted to that as well? And is that why he's been quite so uh, proactive on it in his first term? He's only been in, as you say, maybe a year. Um, and does he risk perhaps being a one-term Prime Minister, which then brings a lot more upheaval um, uh, and changes to policy and losing all of this momentum once again. So anyone that's followed Australian politics over the last 15 years would know that any Prime Minister is at risk of being a one-term Prime Minister. <laughs> it's kind of, we've had a succession of them. So we had we had Kevin Rudd in 2007. He lasted about three years. Julia Gillard lasted about three years. Tony Abbott lasted about three years. Malcolm Turnbull lasted about three years. Scott Morrison, I think, might have got a bit closer to four, and now we've got Albanese. Um, and so it's it's the killing fields when it comes to prime ministers here in Australia. Um, so there's a lot in that question. Um, I, I'm go- I'll try and address it briefly. Um, so the Teal candidates uh, were female independents running in traditional Blue Ribbon Conservative seats. So these were, um, you know, very well-to-do uh, inner city electorates that were socially progressive but economically uh, conservative, um, and uh, were getting had over successive electric, electoral cycles, um, got uh, increasingly frustrated for largely moderate uh, MPs that were representing them in Canberra on the conservative side of politics. Um, not really influencing the position of the Liberal Party, which in in Australia is the right of centre party. Um, So they felt like issues like climate, uh, issues like integrity, issues like um, women's uh, empowerment, they just weren't getting a run. And so you had um, socially progressive, economically conservative professional women putting their hands up as independents. And this isn't a party. It's a kind of a movement. It's a loose affiliation. Um, And they were remarkably successful, remarkably successful. Now, the Albanese government actually won uh, election in its own right. So regardless of what took place in these teal seats, they just snuck across the right line. They they won one more seat than they needed to to secure a majority in parliament. 
Um, but what it did do is it meant the losses for the conservative side of politics was much greater than they otherwise would have been. Um, and there was also a significant vote for progressive parties in the Senate as well. So we have an upper house and a lower house. Um, and, and so what that meant was that across the parliament, there's actually a very significant progressive majority for climate and energy issues. Um, much greater than the kind of the, the one or two seat majority that the government in the lower house um, would imply. Um, so sure. it's less likely, you know, notwithstanding everything that I just said, making of what I've learned um, uh, over the years, making any kind of predictions for what the hell happens in Australian politics is just a fool's game. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> well, yes, politics but Australia in, in particular. Um, <laughs> uh, the, um, the more likely outcome it would be it would be that Albanese government would go into minority and they'd have support of the crossbench. It, right. The task that faces the conservative side of politics is how to win back those inner city seats. It'd be very hard for them to form government without it. Um, and one of the one of the interesting shifts that has occurred is they've got less metropolitan seats, particularly in big cities like Sydney and Melbourne, as a result of these of the uh, the rise of the teals. And uh, the uh, uh, and more of the MPs are, are in states like Queensland, which are just more conservative in general. So the shape of the parties has shifted. So they've got this there's this dissonance, right? They've got to win back more of the centre at the same time as you know the party itself has probably got a bit more conservative along the journey. This is not in, in any way you know particularly incisive analysis. This is something that's well understood um, in terms of the internal Australian politics. But it is interesting, and it'll be interesting to see how um, the the right side of politics grapples with with that tension as they try to forge a pathway mm. back. Into government, I don't think that um, the Albanese government's necessarily doing more or less because of the shape of the parliament, but they've probably got more opportunity to get some of the things that they want to get through through, because yes, the support of the low and lower house from the Teals, but there's also a progressive majority of a couple of Teal-like candidates and the and the Greens in the Senate, which is allowing them to get quite a lot of climate legislation through. Interesting. Luke, thank you so much for your time today. Really uh, fascinating whirlwind <laughs> around Australian uh, energy transition and politics uh, and, and the uh, various uh, factors that that covers. One question we like to ask all of our uh, guests on What Matters is if they could look into their crystal ball, what does the energy transition look like uh, in 10 to 20 years' time, I guess, in your case, specifically so, in Australia? I'm actually uh, – uh, I was thinking about this and – I think what's really important is that we have a really positive vision of what the energy transition looks like. A sort of a theme going through our conversation today has been that you can take two steps forward and if you haven't brought the community along for the journey, then you can go three, four, five steps back and we don't have time for that. And so one of the things that we think about a lot here is, well, how do we um, express to the Australian community that this is all going to be worth it? This is a, this is a lot of effort to make this transition. Um, you know, we're rebuilding a lot of stuff. We're changing things in your homes. It's There's a lot of money that's going to be spent. Um, and yes, you can kind of, you know, point to um, the the impacts on, on climate uh, if we don't act. But I think 
you know, people people need to be motivated by a positive vision as well. One of the one of the things that we can say is that if we get this right, you'll be living in a home that will be cheaper to run. Um, it'll be more comfortable. It'll be healthier for you and your kids. Like, you know, the core of your life will be better um, uh, because you um, have made this shift, and you'll be able to be you'll be able to be confident that you know you're living in a way that isn't impacting on the environment on the climate. So it's that positive vision and that's what I would hope is that we can get to a, a world where, you know, yes, we've done the big stuff on the supply side, but we've done all the small stuff on the demand side that both makes that transition on the supply side easier and imp- actually improves people's lives. Brilliant. Yeah, I hope so too. Sounds great. Before we go then, I'd like to go around the table and quickly see what caught my eye um, in the last sort of week or two, or I guess over the summer perhaps, uh, given that we've uh, had a couple of weeks off. Uh, Jan, let's begin with you. What caught your eye I saw an article um, on solar and um, the amount of solar panels currently in warehouses in Europe. I don't know to what extent the numbers are exactly right, but it said 40 gigawatts of solar panels are currently in warehouses in Europe, ready to be deployed, but currently not deployed because of uh, a number of bottlenecks. Um, so maybe there's something we can learn from Australia, uh, given that they have achieved one third of penetration already. Yeah, really interesting. Ready, They're all ready to go. We just need to uh, get them on roofs. Michaela, how about you? What caught your eye over yeah, the summer? I realized I might have had a good break because I took a while to come up with something that struck me over the past four weeks. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's a good sign. Um, no, uh, on the theme that uh, came up a couple of times here with Luke today on the we, we need to go fast, but we need to take the people along. Um, I read about the Irish Environmental Protection Agency was tweeting and I looked at up the original tweet quite carefully about, you know, you should reduce meat waste and maybe you can eat a bit more vegetables. It was very carefully phrased, but resulted in a storm and uh, by the farmer lobby and then they had to retract this tweet. So, um, yeah, um, interesting when, you know, at one point something like this would be acceptable to say or we have convinced the people that this is also a good way to go for another episode absolutely definitely was something to explore later on uh luke what could you uh there's a paper that has recently come out in australia that's written by a really interesting guy uh, dr ron ben david um who you will listens in um, Europe and other parts of the world wouldn't know, but he's very well known in energy circles here in Australia. He ran the state-based Essential Services Commission for uh, for ten years. He was the uh, CEO of the Ghana Review, um, which is our equivalent of the Stern Review, um, and he actually designed or helped design the national electricity market and the big, you know, privatize, privatization reforms um, that we saw in Australia in the seventies uh, and uh, sorry, the the nineties and the early two thousands um, that resulted in you know all those state based markets coalescing into the national electricity market. He's just written a paper explaining why the market design that he put in place over twenty years ago is fundamentally broken and not fit for purpose. <laughs> 
for the energy transition that we're working our way through. And so I just thought for your for the, your uh, listeners that are interested in energy market design, energy market governance, mm. um, it's, it's a little bit of a ghost of Christmas future um, for markets that are kind of <laughs> a little bit behind where Australia is in terms of the rollout of, of renewables. I think these are really kind of meaty questions from someone that's an, a, 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 mm. has deep expertise in the market as it exists here in Australia because he designed it, um, but also a deep commitment to kind of us transitioning um, to the uh, a, a new set of arrangements that will actually be fit for purpose for where where we're going. Um, so uh, yeah, I'd cool. commend that to you. Um, and uh, it's a, it's a short paper; it's like twenty pages, but uh, thought provoking one for your listeners. I do excellent. Yep, uh, all of our listeners will be able to find that in the show notes if they want to read more. Um, I'm going to call in our producer, Kira. Kira, what's uh, caught your eye so over, the, over the summer I've just break? Come back from holiday, but I ended up going to very, very deep water after my holiday because I ended up reading all of the Polish legal arguments against some of the Fit for 55 legislation that's just been uh, agreed by the EU, and to me, it really spoke about the fact that. Yes, this has been agreed in Brussels, but now it's got to be implemented by everyone, including the countries who didn't particularly like it and didn't support it. So, yes, I really don't recommend reading it unless you want to read all of the numerical values of these pieces of legislation. But it is really fascinating (laughs) to see what Poland is saying. Absolutely. Yeah, we can have all of these great ideas, but uh, implementing them uh, is Sometimes difficult. Um, and from my side, uh, what caught my eye uh, on my break? I was obviously scrolling through the social media channels, and I came across a video um, from the Festival of Speed Instagram account, um, which is a, a, a motor festival here in the UK. And it's a video about um, putting sails back on ships and using, obviously, um, the wind to help power boats. I guess to help reduce uh, the use of fuels. Um, obviously, not entirely bulks using wind power but at least to help you help propel it along uh, and not require quite so much uh, in the way of uh, diesels or other fuels so really interesting video there about adding yeah these massive sails onto cargo ships and any other boats uh, and it says lots of them could be retrofitted onto existing ships so um, going back to the old technologies speaking about all the new ones um, perhaps we can look back into the past and see what we've used before in the past that's all we have time for this week. My thanks to Luke, Michaela, Jan, and our producer, Kira. If you have any thoughts or questions about anything we have said on today's podcast, you can reach us on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at DaveW underscore Foresight. Michaela? It's the X account now. Oh, you're no longer on Twitter, are you? <laughs> no, isn't it? <laughs> I well, Twitter, Twitter doesn't Twitter, exist. But, X uh... exists. <laughs> Twitter doesn't. X. X. <laughs> Whatever it, whatever people call yeah, it these the days. The social media account formerly known as Twitter. Citizen Zane one. Jan. I'm on uh, Jan Rosenau. Uh, Luke. Yeah, you can find me on X uh, at Menzel. <laughs> probably probably the easiest face to find me. I also uh, hang out on LinkedIn if 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 folk want to connect with me there. Absolutely. Uh, and Luke, just finally for our listeners, what are the podcasts uh, that you mentioned if our listeners want to hear more and where can they find them? Sure. Um, so uh, in, in your podcast app of choice is where you can find them. Uh, so my organisation, um, the Energy Efficiency Council, has a regular interview show um, where I interview uh, experts, many and various, from Australia and around the world. Um, Jan was on a recent episode. Uh, we recorded an interview with him um, when he was down for our 
conference. Um, so that's definitely worth checking out. You can pick the eyes out of that and listen to the interviews that you're interested in. I think we're, we're in the 80, we've got 80 something episodes now. Um, and then let me sum up is your regular deep dive into recent reports on climate and energy. Uh, it is with me and fellow wonks, Tenant Reed and, and Francesca Muscovich. Um, uh, Alison Reeve is subbing in while Frankie's on maternity leave at the moment. And you can find, uh, let me sum up at letmesumup.net. So that's easy to remember as well as your perfect step. Absolutely. And if you have any questions for the team, you can also tweet to the show or X the show at what matters pod or email us show at what matters Thank you all so much for listening and we'll see you again next time.